Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Steve, how are you doing this afternoon? It's great to be talking with you. Yeah, it's good to be back, Brad. I am doing just fine. Excited for another one of these. Yeah, so today we are going to be talking about mental health in high-performance individuals, um, really particularly looking at athletes um, off the heels of Naomi Osaka's decision not to compete in Wimbledon um, because of her mental health that eventually um, really led to a fair amount of coverage around athletes and mental health. And we know a bit about both. So we, we figured that we'd dive in a little bit today. Yep. And before we do that, just a reminder, if you are enjoying this podcast, take a moment, rate and review it. It really helps the algorithm that gets people to listen to us somehow. We have no idea how, but it helps. So do your part, appreciate it, and let's dive into the topic. All right. So for those that may be living in a cave um, <laughs> that, that aren't aware, because it was pretty big news when it happened, uh, Naomi Osaka, who is a phenomenal American tennis player, um, didn't want to participate in press conferences during the Wimbledon tournament. And her reason for this was basically that she's burnt out. It causes her angst, restlessness. Oftentimes the questions are dumb. So she didn't show up. And the Wimbledon um, tournament directors, and I think it's actually like the U.S. Tennis Federation, they started fining her for not showing up. And a few days later, she made the decision to drop out of the tournament completely. And the reason that she gave was she was doing this to put her health first. And um, she was pretty clear at mentioning that she felt tired, burnt out. And this was as much about mental health as anything um, for her. And... All the pontificators pontificated and talked about how great it was, how on one side, on the other side, how bad it is. Press conferences are what make the sport. You get paid millions of dollars. You should show up and do it. She's just a young person. She's an athlete. We should watch her because she's good at tennis, not because she goes in front of people on a podium and on and on and on. And like we so often do, we try to stay out of the immediate fray. Uh, because these things tend to be nuanced and, and rather complex at times. And now that um, the situation's unfolded, we feel like we've, we've got some ideas uh, based on the research and our own experience working with high performers. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we're talking about this. And thanks for setting that up, Brad, because it's such an interesting topic. And what I hope we bring, which we always try to do the same, is nuance to it. Because I think this is a discussion when we look at mental health and athletes, especially on the, the high level side, is that nuance is demanded because it's easy to jump to either side. It's easy to jump to, um, let's celebrate mental health, which is great, right? And it's easy for others to jump to, hey, you're playing, you're being paid millions of dollars to play a game, like sit through the press conference. So I think to start, like, it's important to acknowledge that, like, Naomi Osaka and others in the they're human beings dealing with this. And I think the awareness is fantastic. The awareness and normalization of going through this anxiety and burnout and other things is fantastic and great. 
Um, I think what we're going to try and do is dive into some of these details and, and split apart where maybe uh, we might be going in the wrong direction as a society or maybe individually better things you could do to handle such a situation. Love it. So with Osaka in particular, and just using her as an example, you can apply this to any athlete or really any person. Uh, we have no business speculating what was going on in her mind, in her heart when she made that decision. And if you are in the throes of depression, anxiety, obsession, forget about a press conference. You often don't want to leave your house. So if Naomi Osaka decided that she didn't want to compete in tennis is her calling, her uh, living, all of these things, then I am going to give her more than the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say like, it's a pretty gutsy move. And I feel bad for her because she must have been in quite a hole to make that call. So the, the first point that I just wanted to make is I don't think it's fair unless you're in Naomi Osaka's brain to really say anything other than, oh, like she must really be going through some stuff. And it's glad that, um, or, or I'm glad that she made the call to protect herself during those moments where she felt really fragile. Yeah, I think that's a great point and important to kind of get out in the in the first part because no one knows what anybody's going through. And both you and I have gone through periods or, or moments where we've had kind of that debilitating, debilitating mental health issue that has, you know, made it where we didn't want to do anything or didn't want to step outside. Or um, so I could only imagine stepping onto a world stage. Uh, so I think that's important to get that out there. Um, what I think I'd like to talk about a little bit is maybe this contrast, Brad, between on one hand, we have this like champion of mental health and the awareness, which is great. But awareness is only one step of the problem, which is, okay, it, it's great that you're aware that, you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera, overtraining, burnout, whatever you have, we want to call it, it's great. But the more important step or the next step that often isn't taken is, okay, what do we do about it? And and to me, you know, for handing it back over, this is incredibly important because I almost see these things, you know, I'm going to jumble up or categorize all mental health for a minute and just throw it all together. It's almost like this beast that can grow and like overtake things and overtake your life, right? And sometimes we're feeding that beast without realizing it. And sometimes awareness is really good, but then if it steps too far, it becomes now it becomes like part of the thing feeding this beast, keeping you from doing the thing that you you want to get back to doing. So I think there's a lot of, you know, I threw out a lot out there, but there's a lot of nuance in this uh, to kind of go over. Right. This is a perfect time to unpack the evidence-based ways to work through uh, depression and anxiety. <laughs> so the third wave therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectable, be- dialectical behavioral therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy, they've got two very strong foundations or themes that they all share in common. In the first 
is self-love, self-compassion, non-judgment, being kind to yourself, giving yourself space, not showing up to the press conference or the tournament when you feel completely crippled. The second theme that on its face seems almost the opposite is do the hard thing even if you don't feel like it. And what makes these therapies so effective is that they marry those two qualities. And the reason for this is pretty clear. The brain, or if you want to call it the mind, it is a pattern-making machine. So if you avoid something and you continue to avoid it, doing it just becomes harder. If you wallow in really dark feelings, eventually that inertia becomes stronger. So there is an element of all of these therapies that work of pushing through. Now, the pushing through has to be surrounded by a place of support and love, self-love and also support and love from others. And I think in sport, what has gone on is in the past, it was very much just bottle it up, hold it in, suck it up and compete. And you see a lot of depression, anxiety, suicide in athletes. I think more recently what's happened to Steve's great point is there's been a ton of awareness around mental health. So now the pendulum has swung from suck it up, compete to let it out, take care of yourself. I think the danger is If you sit out tournaments number two, three, four, and five, then you're actually making the anxiety or the depression or the obsession worse. Any good therapist will tell you that there is nothing wrong with going easy on yourself and practicing some level of avoidance. But the minute that that avoidance becomes a pattern, you're just fueling the disorder. And that's not me speaking. That's the research. Yeah, I'm glad you outlined uh, the modern therapies because they all do have that similarity. And I think that distinction is is important. You know, where my mind goes, not surprisingly, like it does with everything is running. Because the way I kind of look at it is all of these, you know, all of these different therapies, all these different, you know, behaviors and mental health issues there's, is you're you're dealing with a brain that loves patterns and loves like laying down these foundations to go down this pattern behavior. And if I think of running, you know, when I was young, I was always taught this by coaches. The first, if you drop out of a race, it becomes easier to do over time. Okay. And we're not talking, you know, dropping out because of, you know, life or death or, you know, dehydration and can't go. We're talking dropping out because, you know, fatigue, et cetera. Um, you just drop out. It becomes easier. And it does. You can ask anyone who's dropped out of a race. It becomes easier the second time you've done it. it same here. I've dropped out of many races. It becomes easier. The old school way of, of, of dealing with was of this was, hey, never drop out ever regardless like do everything you can to not drop out so it's not easier the new modern way is hey if you drop out because of something legitimate or not legit or like maybe it's something that doesn't deserve dropping out you need to deal with and process that right 
you don't ignore it. You don't suppress it. You don't say, oh, next time I'm going to be okay because the next time that ease to pick that path is going to grow. But you have to like deal with the emotions, feelings, thought patterns that, that went around it so that you're not laying down this this these tracks so that, as I said earlier, that beast can grow that pushes you to drop out. And I think the same thing to a degree is similar when you're dealing with a lot of these mental health, anxiety, um, depression, etc. As you just mentioned there, if you step away from a tournament, it's okay, but it makes that path a little bit easier, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means that you need to address and deal with and do the hard work to figure out, okay, why is this overwhelming me? How do I prevent this from being the default path to do whenever I feel this state? Because we have to realize that whenever we feel any of these emotional states uh, tied with depression, anxiety, and all that stuff, um, all the body is doing is looking for, okay, how do we cope with this? And is that cope avoidance? Is that cope suppression? Is that coping, like navigating through it or, or, you know, figuring out what to do? We all have these different coping paths to do. And a lot of times we choose avoidance because it's like the easiest, simple one in the moment. Um, but over the long haul, it doesn't lead to the adaptation um, that maybe processing and navigating does. Mm-hmm. The analogy that I like to use here um, and something that makes it even more complicated to navigate is so imagine that there is a big tiger and perhaps for someone like Naomi Osaka, the first time you're really dealing with bad anxiety or bad depression and you're looking at the Wimbledon tournament, it's a tiger. And if you come across a tiger out in the suburbs, you run the other direction. Then what happens is if you have a good community or a good therapist or a good coach or both, someone points out that, hey, you know, you were just really tired and perhaps burnt out. And maybe we need to make some adjust- adjustments in your training and your playing. But what you thought was a tiger, it was actually just a paper tiger. It wasn't real. Looks real, looks scary, but it's made out of paper. And then the person, you're still terrified. You don't believe the coach or therapist. You're like, no, I'm positive it was a tiger. It was a freaking tiger. The more that you avoid the tiger, the scarier the tiger becomes. The job of all of these good therapies is to be kind to yourself because it's really hard to approach the tiger that you thought was real, but get closer and closer and closer to the tiger until you realize that it's just made out of paper. And again, it's so worth reiterating Where this gets really challenging is sometimes the tiger is real and then becomes paper. So in the case of Naomi Osaka, if she was overworked, burnt out, having terrible thought spirals, there's no doubt about it, playing in Wimbledon would have been a bad idea. That was a real tiger for her in that circumstance. But Wimbledon is not a real tiger. It's made out of paper and to continue to avoid it might just do a disservice to her. Um, So again, I think it's really important to tease out that avoidance might make sense at first because if something's a 10 out of 10 on the panic scale, it generally doesn't make sense to expose yourself to that. But if you keep avoiding, then 
you really put yourself in a bad pattern or a bad hole. So it's almost like realizing that, okay, I needed to do this for myself at first. And now that I have, I need to get some help so I can get closer to the thing that scares me. Or you just quit the game. If she's over tennis, she quits tennis and that's fine too. Yeah. I, I love that analogy uh, or that story you just told. Um, it really hits home. And if you, if you look at the, the research, I'll bring it back to this on actually grief and emotional regulation. There's some really fascinating uh, neuroscience that shows essentially that if we use uh, coping strategies like avoidance or even suppression, where we're not dealing with or processing or understanding the thing, right, to see whether the tiger is paper or real, then there's no adaptation that occurs, right? If we use strategies that, or if our coping process involves like looking at it, like evaluating it, and then, you know, making sense of it, like a strategy, like maybe um, trying to reframe it, right? Because you are cognitively, you have to cognitively process what your experience is in order to reframe it. Then there is adaptation over the long haul where, you know, your body adapts and becomes better accustomed to uh, dealing with the thing that you're, you're dealing with. Yeah. I think some really good examples in, 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 of doing this are Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan uh, and the National Basketball Association. So uh, both star players, the, the former Kevin Love suffers from panic and anxiety, the latter DeMar DeRozan from depression. And both of these guys had periods where they just couldn't play. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, it was actually All-Star Weekend. He tweeted in the middle of the night, this depression got the best of me. Kevin Love had a panic attack during a game, sat out a few games after. And then, though, they both kind of decided that playing basketball was a core value of theirs and something that they really wanted to do. And they kept going and they kept playing, even though at first it was terrifying and scary. And what's interesting is they didn't suck it up in repress. They didn't hide it. They didn't just power through. They, they, they both, I think DeMar DeRozan too, definitely Kevin Love, they both took some time off, but they didn't let that time off become a pattern. Um, they were open about it. They got support both from their community and from professionals. And then they got back in the game. And I think that something that is, to, to put this in oversimplified terms, I think the risk here is that, and particularly in the way that a lot of the, 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 the more progressive media, which I consider myself a part of, covers this, is you get, okay, we're not going to be repressing anymore. It's really good. People are being open about mental health, about depression, anxiety, burnout. We're not going to force people to show up and play when they're uncomfortable. All good. We need to get over this toxic masculinity and spend more time singing kumbaya and self-compassion and love. All still good. The issue is if the coverage and the opining stops there, they're doing a disservice to everyone involved. Because back to what I said at opening, not one of the evidence-based therapies stops there. They all go to the next step, which is and you better know your core values and even if it's scary and terrifying, and even if you have to hold someone's hand, you go do the scary thing and if it aligns with your core values. 
because otherwise your life just contracts and gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And again, my fear is that we stop at the self-love kumbaya, it's the system that's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And some of that, if not all of that may be true, but the choice is still to have a contracting life versus facing your fears with the appropriate support, with the appropriate self-compassion. And that's ultimately how you work through anxieties. Now, might there need to be structural changes to tennis? I have no idea. I'm not a tennis aficionado. Um, most of the sports organizations, they care about money. The players are highly compensated. I'm sure the organizations all want to make more money. And sometimes they're at odds. Uh, and I think athletes immediately kind of shutting down and continuing to shut down is not good for them as individuals. Yeah, no, I mean, you really summed up the issue right there, which is this kind of battle between, uh, awareness and then, uh, the second part, which is doing difficult things and navigating or figuring your way through them. Um, and we've really kind of shifted the pendulum to do the awareness side, which I think is really good. I think the other danger of this is that, especially in today's social media world, um, you you get positive feedback from awareness now, which is good, but it also can shift shift it to making awareness be the thing, where that is the reward, where you feel like oh look, like I've increased mental health awareness. I've put my stuff out there. Like now everyone knows I feel better about it, et cetera. That's the end. And I think what we're warning people or suggesting is that that does not signal the end. That is like step one of this multi-step journey, right? And I think, you know, Brad, I remember when you came out with your OCD stuff. We talked about this for a while in the sense of how's it going to feel when this becomes public, which is something that um, as a professional athlete, Osaka and others like her like have to deal with more so than they had to deal with in, in the past. In the sense that you're not just dealing with your own mental health. Now you're dealing with the reaction or response to it on a social media and media dominated world where you get this 24 seven feedback and then add in the fact that everybody is human. And some of these athletes, especially when they go through a struggle or what have you, as now they're literally, you know, spending uh, after the game or even at halftime scrolling through Twitter to see the the responses, which takes this to like an, an entirely other level. And it's a really bad idea. I'm going to go make like a value judgment. If you're out there and you're a young person or if you're an older person, um, when you are going through like emotional turmoil, the best thing that you can do is narrow your world in terms of social relationships to people that you trust and can like give you love and honesty. And generally speaking, social media is not the place to do that. Um, and it just causes more vibrations and more doubting and more second guessing. Um, and it, to Steve's point, I think it's really unfortunate that it's now in today's era, kind of the first place that people go to share some of this stuff. Um, the first place, if it's the, listen, sharing is better than not sharing. And if it's the only place you're comfortable doing so, okay. But if you've got a friend, a family member, 
a rabbi, a priest, an imam, even better if you have access to a therapist. Um, these are the places that you want to go to share because these are people that will care about you, that know you. Putting something out into the abyss, you're likely to get just the polar extremes, which is what we're seeing with Naomi Osaka. You've got the New York Times saying, this is so great. Everyone should drop out always when they feel anxious. And that's an exaggeration, but certainly in that spirit. And then you've got Fox News saying another proof that Americans are soft. And both of those are really misguided. But that's what social media is, you know, and it's and of course, like neither are right. I have an opinion of which one does more harm, but neither are good. Yeah, you know, it just gets to the 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 modernization of kind of media and consumption is taking the extremes, right? And I think, you know, you're, you've probably you're probably listeners at home are probably sick of this, but that's why we always come back to nuance, 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 nuance. Like, understand the nuance so that you can navigate through this complex topic, because there are no there are it is very rarely black and white or right and wrong. Um, there is always nuance and even something like this where you sit uh, mental health where there's nuance to okay awareness is great but if we stop there it's not the best solution i mean it's better than ignoring and suppressing but if we stop there and we say hey everyone you know if you feel any bit of if you feel anxious like stop doing what you're doing that's a negative as well. So, you know, to me, it comes right, They're both to- negative, but it's also not, it's not just if you feel anxious doing what you're doing. It's also if you feel anxious and you keep doing what you're doing, that can be a negative. Like it, it all depends. Yeah. It's all, it, you know, this is why we don't have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of uh, people listening because our answers are always, well, it depends, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, that's where we come down here, but I think, Okay, so what are, what are we kind of getting at here is, again, if you're looking at any of these topics, I think it's important to go to the nuance, but it's also important to understand, you know, the uh, research-backed, evidence-based, um, you know, treatments or therapies or what have you, because they provide a, a clear picture for, okay, how should we be handling this? You know, not... not how the pundits pontificate. But if you look at the research of, okay, what, how do we handle anxiety? Well, all these different methods all point to, you know, the same commonalities, which is, you know, experience it, be aware of it, acknowledge it, get support, and then like feel or bolster yourself so that you can feel like you can navigate through it, cope through it, make sense of it, and come out on the other end. Very well summarized. And you know, if, if if the answer is that, hey, pro tennis is just a gauntlet that is set up to make you anxious and depressed, and you're a pro tennis player, I think you either need to really surround yourself with the right people to help you manage that and really rise above those emotions, or you need to say, F this, I don't want to be doing this anymore. And both of those are fine. The F this, I don't want to be doing this anymore is only fine if your core values don't want to be doing it either. But if you want to be doing it because you care about excellence or being a role model or this, that, and the other, and you're avoiding it because you're scared, it's that avoidance that's the problem. 
right? You shouldn't do hard things for the sake of doing hard things. That's kind of dumb. But you should do hard things that are fulfilling and meaningful and you want to. And if you're avoiding them because you're scared, then those are the fears to work through uh, in the ways that we we discussed a little bit earlier. This reminds me, uh, this conversation of um, Jonathan Haidt, and I'm rem- misremembering the co-author's name, Dan L- Lubinowski. Uh, Steve, you want to look it up. But anyways, they wrote Coddling of the American Mind. And this was mainly about students and uh, trigger warnings and microaggressions and all these things that are becoming increasingly common on campus. And they made the point that, hey, if, if you wanted to write a textbook on how to make someone anxious or depressed, you would do all these things that campuses are doing because they're basically saying that certain words should be avoided and you should ask permission before you say something to someone. And uh, I happen to agree with them. Again, I think the popular coverage of this completely misses the ball because on the left, you hear trigger warnings, microaggressions. We need to be respectful of people's past trauma. And on the right, you hear everyone is soft. And the truth is someone can say something that's a douche move. And that person can be a total douche that you don't want to associate with. And generally speaking, unless it's a direct threat to your safety, if words are triggering such an anxious or depressive response, that's not great because then you're letting someone else's words control you. Doesn't mean that people aren't racist or douches. There are plenty of douches and racist people out there, and we can call them that. But the minute that you're letting words or stories trigger you in a way where you feel so unstable that you can't be in the room, what is that? That's avoidance, because now you're avoiding being in the room. Now, if you're just surrounded by jerks, then yeah, get out of the room. But most times, um, there are some decent people in the room. And I think that you become really insulated. Um, another example of this that I'll, I'll talk about that's separate from sport too is I know someone who has the perception that growing up um, they had a rather challenging or at least different childhood because of their ethnic background. And this person, um, and I don't know this person well, I'm sure this person's not listening to the podcast, this person will say that if they, they often feel lonely and alone because no one can understand the feelings that they went through growing up. But then if you try to talk to the person about those feelings, it's too hard for them to share. And I think what ends up happening is you just get isolated. And I have no doubt it might be really hard, but maybe you start with a therapist. But if it's too hard for you to share with close friends or with people in your community or your circle what you went through, but you're also suffering because no one knows what you went through, well, then by definition, you're just going to dig that hole deeper and deeper. Um, And I think that these things are just way too often held in these big dualistic terms where it's either right or wrong, when in fact, like it's neither right nor wrong, it's both and. The co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind was uh, Greg Lukanoff, just to get that right. But I, I agree completely. And I think this is one of those instances uh, outside of support that, outside of sport, sorry, that kind of gets at this, is if your sensitivity meter is so through the roof 
right? That words or phrases um, cause you to feel like this immense disgust or want to escape or whatever intense avoidance, then in most cases, you know, not all, but in most cases, that's a sign and signal to me to that you need to dial down your sensitivity, like train yourself to be able to deal with and not jump from straight from, oh, this word or phrase is offensive to immediate uh, disgust, right? Or, you know, avoidance, whatever have you. And I think that's something in certain parts of society we've, again, sometimes we, in the past, I, I feel like our sensitivity to threat, emotions, et cetera, has been too too low in the sense we've been taught to, you know, avoid bulldoze through but then in certain areas now we've we've gone the other extreme and dialed up that sensitivity so that everything is threatening um and when everything is threatening what do we do we try to avoid it to not deal with it or try and you know um yeah try and avoid it and i think the one thing i'd say before turning it back over is that when we look at these coping mechanisms, avoidance or suppression, okay, we've kind of painted them in the ba- in a bad light. They work really well for the short term, you know, if you're dealing with something just for the moment, right? So if I'm in the final stages of, you know, of the marathon and trying to kick, you know, I'm going to compartmentalize and sometimes suppress that feeling of pain or fatigue. But at some point, I have to deal with it, right? And the same goes with some of these other things, regardless of his physical or mental, is that suppression is a short-term solution. Over the long haul, it causes things to either grow into this beast or cause you to never be so sensitive to that thing, that item, that you never want to you know, encounter or deal with it. So we've got to think of these kind of coping strategies or mechanisms over the short and long term and what is going to make you, you know, not only get through the moment, but also uh, be better equipped to handle this in the future. Yeah. And this isn't to say, just to make it super clear, like that you should put up with assholes. So like, you know, if you're Jewish and someone makes fun of the Holocaust or if you're black and someone calls you the N word, um, like if you react with disgust, that's a pretty normal reaction. I think what we're saying is ideally it doesn't trigger anxiety or depression. It might trigger, you know, middle fingers blazing and fists flying, which sometimes is okay. Other times not. Um, I think what we're keying in at is if that slips to, I'm genuinely interested in your past given race relations in America, will you share? And the answer doesn't have to be yes. The answer can be no, I don't want to share right now. But if that just that question causes such angst, there's nothing wrong with you. Again, like no, like if anything, be kind to yourself. It must, it sucks to have that level of angst, but continuing to avoid that instead of trying to process and work. And maybe it's working with a therapist from your community. If you're a person of color, if you're Jewish, whatever it is, someone who gets it, but ultimately contracting, 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 backing away, backing away, having more things trigger you is just going to lead to more anxiety and more depressive spirals. So it's not about having a Pollyanna view of the world. It's not about excusing all disgusting things or all slights. It's about doing what you can to work through the 
both real and perceived hardships of being a human in a way that gives you the most freedom to live the life that you want to live. And sometimes that does mean a strict boundary. It might mean quitting tennis. It might mean not hanging out with certain people. It might mean not going into certain environments. And as long as that aligns with your true self and your core values, then that's the right decision. You know, and for listeners who are wondering, okay, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, different behavioral therapies. We've had suggestions of going to therapist if you need to. Uh, what other resources are available? I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our um, our friend Mark Freeman's book, You Are Not a Rock, which takes a very kind of simplistic but uh, research-back um, method of dealing with some of these mental health uh, issues and problems. Again, uh, highly recommend it. So if you're interested in diving deeper on, okay, how do I deal with or cope or process if I feel like I'm sensitive or triggered to a high degree or feeling anxious and feeling anxiety when I maybe uh, shouldn't or I've let that kind of beast grow. How do I deal with that? I'd say, you know, therapist, obviously, but a good starting point for understanding is uh, the book, You Are Not a Rock. Love it. And the only other thing that I'll reiterate here, if you're listening and you're thinking, wow, like this is hitting me and I want to learn more or I'm experiencing these things, um, the the three therapies that we are most comfortable recommending um, based on our own experience and the evidence are acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT for short, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short, in dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT for short. There are really good workbooks out there if you um, want to start on your own. And if not, because these therapies have so much in common, most therapists, most psychiatrists that do counseling, there's a lot of overlap. It's very hard to find someone that just does one of the three. Most of them integrate learnings from all of the three. Um, So we hope that this episode was enlightening. We hope that it provided some more nuance around a topic that lacks that in our opinion. And um, although she's definitely not listening, um, we wish Naomi Osaka and all athletes that are in the pressure cooker of being on the world stage um, nothing but the best because it is really hard. And sometimes pulling the plug does make sense Uh, We're not here to criticize or critique that. We're just here to elucidate that pulling the plug as an end doesn't really serve an individual well unless they're truly done with that thing for the rest of her life. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.